Good morning. It is a wonderful day. It's the Lord's day and we're grateful to be able to worship together, to have the freedom to do that and we don't take it for granted and we're so thankful to have you here. I know as I look out that we have several who are visiting with us and we hope that um, we have worship first and then Bible class. That may be something you're used to, may not be. Uh, and so if we miss you after worship services, give us a few moments after Bible class and we'll find you and let you know just how much we are grateful for your presence. And we want to get to know you better. We want to be able to build a, a relationship with you. Nothing more important than for us to encourage each other on this wonderful journey that God has us on through his son Christ to reach out and impact all those around us. You know, there have been a variety of studies that have been done, and in those studies, they have demonstrated very similar results. And those results are that the culture is drifting away from a belief in Christ and an adherence to organized religion. One particular study says that from 1998 to 2000, there were 70% of people who affiliated themselves with a specific church And from 2016 to 2018, that number had dropped to 50%. It points up the challenge that we face. As the people of God trying to share the message of God to a people who are increasingly knowing less about God, then we've got to figure out what the challenges are and how we meet that. And so as we look at the challenges that something like this might bring up to us, we see that there is the challenge of evangelism. We have all of these unaffiliated adults who no longer see themselves as a part of a church. Did you know that one out of four religious adults does not identify or affiliate with a specific church? It's the challenge of evangelism. I I think about prayers that have been prayed and things that were said this morning that let us know that we have our mind on that challenge. And then there's the challenge of relevance. As people are drifting further away, uh, there's the question of, How do we help them to connect? You know, the statistics continue to say that those who reach adulthood, they get married and they have children, they are often looking for a faith community. And so our challenge is to show them the relevancy of what we offer and who we are to meet that challenge. And then there's the challenge of authenticity, and this is a big one. Because of all the organizations and institutions that there are in our society, there is a growing erosion for organized religion even beyond most other organizations. That is that people look at church in the general sense and they say those folks are not sincere, they're not the real deal and we have to live in the wake of that challenge. And then there's the challenge of perceived need. That is, there are a growing number of people who don't understand or see that they have a need for something greater than themselves or something greater than our society has to offer. And how do we rise up and meet that challenge to tell them that we have something they need and that it needs to be central to their lives? Now, as we think about that particular truth, that this is a growing challenge that we face, this fourfold challenge, I want you to think about the challenge of the first century. And it may be that when you think of a person living in the first century, what you think about is the Jew that you're introduced to in the Gospels or that you read about in the book of Acts. They were devout, they were religious, they believed in God, they went to the temple, they went to the synagogue, they studied the scriptures, but that wasn't the typical person in the first century. 
At least as Christ is beginning to be shared, there were a lot of people. You see, the the Roman Empire covered the world. And the people who made up those particular nations, and that filled every nation, were people who turned to a variety of things. And I would suggest to you that first century Roman Empire is not dissimilar from 21st century America. They had all kind of religious and non-religious options to fill that void in their hearts and their lives. They could turn to Greek mythology. They had uh, inherited Greek mythology. They called it Roman mythology. They changed the names of some of the gods. But they still had this belief in these human-like gods. And then there were the Roman imperial deities. That is, the gods that were introduced to the people through the Roman Empire. And then there was the worship of the Roman emperor. There were some who put the Roman emperor on a pedestal and worshipped him as though he were God. And then there was Greek philosophy. It wasn't so much religious, but it was a mindset. It was a worldview. And there were so many of them, it's hard for us to catalog and categorize all of them. And then there was world religions that exist today, that existed then. Some of the world religions that we have have been around for a long time, longer than Christianity. There were people practicing Hinduism and Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, and and, uh, Egyptian polytheism, and and more. But for us to really get a, a feel for what the challenge was at times in the first century, all that we've got to do is to go with the Apostle Paul into Athens, Greece. You know, I appreciate what Dwight said as a lead up to the the passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 17. You know, the gospel had first been introduced to Europe in the chapter before in Acts chapter 16. And that matters to us because of the impact that it had in generations and descendants to come. But as we look at it, it was a pagan world. It was a world that knew very little of God. So in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, you see again what we read a moment ago, that Paul was waiting on his co-workers, and as he was there, his spirit was stirred within him as he observed the city full of idols. And as he is there, he goes and reasons with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day with those that he encountered there. And there were also Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and some of them said, what would this idol babbler wish to say? And others say this man is proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they brought him into the Areopagus and they said unto him, What are these strange things that you are proclaiming? These strange things that you bring to our ears. And so they wanted him to explain that to them more. And then there's a footnote by Luke and he says that Athenians and all the strangers who visited there used to spend their time in doing nothing more than telling or hearing something new. All right, there's the environment. You know, often we preach about Acts 17, 22-31, the, the sermon that Paul preaches on Mars Hill. But the background is extremely important. When we look at the background of this sermon, it reminds us very much of our world today. Both then and now, there were all kind of options, religious and non-religious, that people could, could grab onto. And both then and now, there was very little concept of true New Testament Christianity. Even though many of them had never heard of New Testament Christianity, and many of us live at a time in which people have never not heard of New Testament or of Christianity, true, unadulterated, biblical Christianity is something that few people understand. And both then and now, it is the case that everybody is looking for a worldview. 
a way to look at life that gives them purpose and meaning. And so the challenge that Paul faced in Athens in Acts chapter 17 is the same challenge that we face when we leave the assemblies today and we go out into our lives, even on the Lord's Day, but certainly through the week, from Monday through Saturday, it is our world. Even as we find ourselves in the Bible Belt, certainly under a certain age, we find ourselves in a circumstance where the people are more like Athens than they are like those in Jerusalem. So how do we reach those individuals. You know, I appreciate the prayer that was prayed as Mike was was directing our minds to think about what happens when we leave here and we go out there. How do we reach those people who are looking for something, who have not found New Testament Christianity and have an abundance of options out before them? I think if we'll look at the background of this sermon, we'll find at least four things that we need to do to reach this culture. If we are going to reach this culture, the first thing that we have to do is we have got to care. We must care. If you'll look in verse 16 and think about what Luke says about Paul. It says that while he was waiting on his co-workers in Athens, that his spirit was stirred within him as he beheld a city full of idols. That word stirred, or your version may say provoked, It's an interesting word. It's not found in abundance of times. It's usually found in a negative sense. There is a time in which it's used in a neutral sense that I find very interesting. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, the Hebrews writer is encouraging the Christians to be faithful. And he says that one way that we do that is what we do here together. In Hebrews 10 and verse 24, he says, Let us consider one another... How to provoke or to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds. That word provoke or stimulate is our word. We're to prod, we are to stir within each other this desire to do what's right, to love like Jesus loved us. But usually when that word is found in the New Testament, it has a negative connotation. In fact, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 39, after the first missionary journey, and as they're getting ready for the second missionary journey, Uh, you'll remember that Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them again and to go on, on this second trip. But he had left them on the first trip, and so Paul said, no, there's no way. He doesn't need to go with us. And there arose a sharp disagreement. That's our word. And in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul's in the middle of giving us this comprehensive 16-part definition of love. And he says, one of the things that will help you to know if you're loving in the right way is... Love is not easily provoked. Now there's our word for Paul in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. He shows up in Athens. He's kind of surveying everything that's going on. And as he looks around the city and he sees all of these false images of worship, all these false ways of trying to reach out to God, verse 23, it says that his spirit was stirred within him. That's remarkable to me. Paul was from Tarsus, not from Athens. This was not his hometown. It was not his background. It was not his religious heritage. And despite that, he was concerned. He cared. You know, if we were to try to to describe 2021 in the United States of America, to describe the mindset of people, there's a lot of different things that we would say specifically. But wouldn't you agree with me that one of the things that we would say is that a problem that we have is is that we're so disconnected from one another in society that we don't care about one another like we used to. 
We don't perceive the circumstances of others. And as we isolate and we disconnect ourselves, then it's hard for us to really have our heartstrings tugged at. That's a very dangerous place to get to. And it's not a place where God wants His people to be. You know, between World War I and World War II, there was, uh, the whole world seemed to be in revolution. And if you look all over the world between those two wars, you'll find it happening. There it was the Soviet Union that was formed uh, based on godless communism. The, the Japanese Empire was spreading fast through violence and bloodshed. And, and, and Italy was overtaken by fascism. And Spain nearly broke apart through uh, civil war. And then the Nazi regime came to power in Germany. Albert Einstein was a citizen of that nation. And it was about that time that he says that the world is a dangerous place, not because men do evil, but because men stand by and do nothing. You know, if you were to apply that to any number of nations that were existing at that time who had the power to do something, but who were inactive and who did not seem to care, millions of innocent people lost their lives. It was only when the culture and the society of nations began to care and to engage their hearts and their minds that the carnage ended and that lives were saved. Well, I think about the far greater need that exists in our world today. There are people every day who are living and dying without the gospel who have not yet learned and known Christ. And as they die and they go out into eternity, they're unprepared to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so if we're going to reach this culture, we have got to care. But what's going to make us care? Think about a couple of things that could make us care. If we're going to reach our culture, we're going to have to include them in our prayer lives. The Apostle Paul is saying this to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, also a very cosmopolitan city, a city that didn't really know Christ. He says that I urge you, therefore, that first of all, requests and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings, and for those who are, are uh, all men who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and dignity, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He breaks that down into four categories. Entreaties, that's urgent requests. If you don't care, you're not going to feel a sense of urgency. And prayers, those are general requests. That's when we pray for the world and we pray for the lost. But it's an important prayer. There's petitions. That's a word that means intercessions on behalf of others. And then thanksgivings, gratitude. For who, Paul? For all men. So what does that mean for us? It means that we're going to have to strengthen and build relationships with people outside of Christ. And then we're going to have to call them by name when we go to God in prayer. And then we're going to have to pray for the courage to speak up. If we're going to care, it's going to be built by a healthy prayer life where we pray for the lost in a specific way. But we're also going to have to envision the future of the church. What is the church going to be like in our nation tomorrow? Now, don't take on all that burden. We can't affect the entire nation. What we can do is affect Bowling Green and Warren County and the area that's immediately adjacent to us. But it's part of our world. It's part of our culture and part of our society. We need to think about what will the church of tomorrow look like. It might not look like the church of today. And I don't just mean methodology. I'm talking about message. And I'm talking about truth to God's word. 
You know, another study that was done says that there are less than 20% of the population in countries like China and Japan and the UK and Germany and France and Russia and Australia and Norway and Sweden who say that religion plays a role in their daily lives. They drilled down further and they found that even half of that number, less than 10% in those nations say that they are in any church service anywhere on a given Sunday. Church buildings and cathedrals have become relics in museums and it's disintegrating their societies. That's not our first and foremost concern. We send missionaries in other places and we need to support that and we need to encourage the missionaries. But right here at home, we need to look at what will the church of tomorrow be like and what we do as a church today is directly impacting that. But to even make it more personal, I think, for us, is we need to envision the future of our families as they live in this society. We want our children and we want our grandchildren to be members of the church of the New Testament. We want to ensure that they live in an environment where they can freely worship as we do today. It doesn't take very long for there to be a decline if we're not sharing, if we're not planting the seed, if we're not demonstrating our care. I heard it said when I was a boy that apostasy, that is abandoning a belief in and an obedience to God, is only one generation away. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 10 it says that Joshua and the men of his generation were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation that knew not God nor yet the work which he had done in Israel. And here's my point in all of that. Paul steps into a city that was not his city. That was not his background, that was not his ethnicity, that was not his heritage. And when he stepped into that city, he cared. And when he cared, he spoke up. If we're going to reach our part of the culture, we have got to have the the care that will cause us to speak up. Now, we're going to look at some things in just a moment that can make that hard for us, but we've got to acknowledge that need, that fundamental need. But then number two, if we are going to reach our culture, we must strengthen our ability to reason. The Apostle Paul is doing two things. He's fighting the war for Christ on two different fronts. He is out there in the marketplace, reasoning with people every day. That's the schoolhouse. That's the job. That's the neighborhood. That's wherever civic and social activities are taking place in our lives. But then he went into the synagogues where he encountered the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Now keep that in its context. That's not talking about what we're doing here. As wonderful as and important as it is for us to worship God and us to stimulate one another into love and good deeds, that's talking about the interaction that we have with those who believe in Christ but are not practicing what the New Testament would demonstrate to be Christianity. We've got to build our ability to reason with both groups. Now, what I see is the Apostle Paul saying to another church, a church very much like Athens, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they are uh, for the destruction of fortresses of this world. We we are uh, fighting speculation and every lofty thing that lifts itself up against the obedience to Christ. And so we find ourselves in a situation where we've got to be armed. We've got to be equipped. That's certainly accomplished in what we do publicly together. Hopefully the sermons that you hear are built on and are faithful to God's Word. 
And in the next hour, when we go into our Bible classes, our greatest hope and our confidence is that the teachers have prepared themselves to teach God's Word in such a way as to give us greater insight into what His will is, to know Him better, to know His will better. But it's certainly something that we have got to do in our daily lives to strengthen our ability to be able to share Jesus with others. I think it's also a statement you would agree with me when I say that we don't engage in critical thinking today like we used to. How do people get their points across today? One of the ways they do that is by shouting down the other person. If I can get louder than you and if I can just call you down, then I'm going to win the day as far as the argument that or the idea of the point. Or attack the person rather than the position. That's the modus operandi of, of the, our culture. That's how they're trying to get their way, their feelings, their thoughts across. And that's not what God wants us to do. And all we need to do is go to the first century and see how the church did not engage in such tactics. Did they do that? Did Did the culture act that way in the first century? Sure. Here's Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and he's preaching Jesus. To Jews, by the way, those religiously devout people we were talking about. And when he really started to deliver the invitation... What did they do? They stopped their ears and they ran on him. And what did Stephen do? He says, Lord, lay not that sin to their charge. What about when Paul, in in a couple of chapters from now, is going to be preaching in Ephesus. And as he does so, he's preaching God's word. And the folks are full of rage at his preaching. And they try to start a riot. What do God's people do? The the side without truth may have been ugly. And they may have been emotional in their argumentation. But... What God's people did was they built what their side of thinking was on what God's word had to say. It's a challenge that we have. We've got to be able to engage in the study. We've got to read God's word carefully and prayerfully. We're to examine all things and to hold fast to what is good. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21. We're not to believe every spirit. We're to try the spirits. For there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. First John chapter 4 and verse 1. We are to study the scriptures daily to see whether the things are so. Acts 17 and verse 11. When we think about the challenge collectively that we have to reach out into our society, we've got to be able to engage folks in reason of the scripture. You know, Jesus is a great example of that. He's with the chief priests and the elders of the Jews, and they don't like what he's saying, and so they challenge his authority. He says, where do you, is your, does your authority come from? In Matthew 21, Jesus says, I'll answer you if you answer me. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? Now, they weren't truth seekers, but I want you to see what Jesus did. Jesus engaged them in the reasoning of the scripture. We can do that. It's going to require us to do what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15. We are to give diligence to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Let me point something out. That command does not require you to go to a school of preaching or to go to a Christian college or to have a Bible degree. Or to be a preacher in order to fulfill that command. The more of us that are building our ability to to reason from the scripture, the more effectively we're going to be able to reach out into our culture. They did that in the first century. Here's Paul going to Athens. And he shows us how to reach the culture. Built on his care for them. You'll notice that he strengthened his ability to reason from the scripture. That's our job. 
If we're going to reach the culture, here's something else. And this may be the hardest point of the four. We have got to be willing to endure ridicule. Gelatophobia is not the fear of Italian ice cream. It is the fear of being laughed at. And a lot of folks, maybe we don't have it at the clinical level, but a lot of us are are just not ready to be ridiculed and, and put to shame for our faith. I know I don't like that. I don't like to be able to share about Christ and to know that somebody may come back by mocking me or saying that I'm a fool. But you know, Paul understood a lot about that, didn't he? Here's Paul, a man who had all of this pedigree. He had a great education. He was on a fast track to be one of the prominent people in his circle of society. And he gave all of that up. He says, I make that as trash in Philippians chapter 3 in order that I might gain Christ. And as a result of the change that he made to preach Jesus in every situation, think about what he received for that. What was the thanks for that change? Well, here there are some in Athens who call him an idle babbler. You know, this wasn't the only time that Paul went through that. In Acts chapter 24 and verse 5, Tertullus called him a pest. In Acts 26 verse 24, Agrippa calls him a madman. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 10 that we are fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're without honor. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul says that his appearance was unimpressive and his speech was contemptible. In other words, there were people who said about him, you're ugly and you're annoying. Why? Would they have said that if he hadn't been preaching Jesus? I don't know. But our Lord is preparing us for that. When our Lord is speaking to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And John echoes this in 1 John 3 and verse 13. When he says in that occasion, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Here's why we have to have that discussion. There may be a few of you who have no problem talking to anybody and not being afraid of what they might say when you share the truth of God's word. You know, there's a, Jesus understands that we're going to struggle with that. Let me tell you, your preacher struggles with that. I don't like to say anything that discourages people or that causes them in response to then make it personal about me. I don't like it. I like, I'm a peacemaker by nature, and that's what I prefer. But Jesus says you're to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, Matthew 10, 16. He's not giving us a free reign to be obnoxious or sarcastic. But he is saying that we've got to have the courage to speak up. That we've got to rise above the world and share Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But in this name glorify God. 1 Peter 4, 16. Here's what our Lord needs us to do in this culture. He says, for even hereunto were you called, that like as Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, that we should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, who when he suffered, he threatened not, but he kept on committing himself to him that judges righteously. But I want you to think about something that the great Indy uh, Indy, uh, driver, Mario Andretti, said. He says, don't look at the wall. Your car goes where your eyes go. Don't look at the ridiculer. If you look at the ridiculer, you take your eye off of the right source and you're looking at the wrong thing. If we're going to reach our culture, we've got to keep our eyes on Christ. 
Because in sharing him faithfully, there are going to be some who will ridicule us. 2 Timothy 3.12, one of my least favorite passages. All that live godly will suffer persecution. I don't want to. I don't like that thought. I don't like the thought of straining and even destroying relationships merely because I bring up Jesus. But it's possible. Now, Paul didn't have a long-standing relationship with the people at Athens, but what he had there, he had in other circles where he did have longer-standing relationships. But it's important, it's essential, if we're going to reach our culture. And then the last thing is this. We must be ready, if we're going to reach out to our culture, to take advantage of the opportunities that we have. Now, I want you to think about the fact that it wasn't just the folks there present who said, he's an idle babbler. There were other people there who were more open and receptive. And may I encourage you that that's true of us? For that person who's going to say, I don't want anything to do with you. How dare you tell me about Christ? And to say those things from the New Testament. There are going to be others who are going to be going, I'd like to hear more about this. It was because the Apostle Paul was willing to care and to have built his reason and his knowledge of God's Word and to endure the ridicule that he had an opportunity to preach that sermon that we know in verse 22 through 31. It requires a ready mindset. We have got to see the opportunity. And to see the opportunity, we're going to have to care. And to seize the opportunity, we're going to have to be competent. And to stomach the opportunity, we're going to have to be courageous. That requires a ready mindset. And I will not have a ready mindset if I have an incorrect view of myself. If I say, I'm not enough, I think too little of me, or if I think too much of me, both of those attitudes are condemned in the Scripture. I will not have a ready mindset if I think incorrectly about others, if I'm afraid of them, or if I'm indifferent to them. And I will not have a ready mindset if I think incorrectly about God. You know, the one talent man had a terrible view of God and it affected his effectiveness. He saw, he had a skewed view of his master. He said, Lord, I knew, or Master, I knew that you were a hard man, that you reaped where you did not sow and you gathered where you had scattered no seed. Did that let him off the hook? No. It caused him to miss an opportunity. Paul challenges me. I know I pray what you pray. Don't you pray, God, give me opportunities to share your son? We're putting ourselves in a position. We may not have the marketplace. I mean, we may not have Mars Hill, but we will have the marketplace. And we may not have the whole city, but we will have the co-worker, the customer, and the, and the cousin. We just, when it comes along and the door opens, we've got to be ready to step through that, to have the courage to follow through. You know, opportunities vary from me to you. They're not the same ones. They're not the same amount. I think about a woman named Sarah Breedlove. Born two years after the Civil War. Parents were uh, slaves on a plantation. She moved to Mississippi from Louisiana when she was seven because she was orphaned. And and her brother-in-law abused her. And so she got married at the age of 14. She was interviewed. And she said that I was born in the cotton fields of the South. And from there, I was promoted to the wash tub. And from there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself to the manufacturing of hair goods and uh, preparations. I have built my own factories on my own ground. She had three months of formal education from a, a church literacy program. 
She had no advantages. She was poor, she was uneducated, and she was abused. And yet she was the first African-American woman millionaire. When she died in 1919, her products called Madam C.J. Walker were being sold. Now, over a hundred years later, they're still being sold. She was generous. She helped others. She had very little, we would say, by way of opportunity, but she made the most of them. However much or however little you have, you have opportunities to do something that's even more infinitely important than has to do with material things. It touches eternity. What will we do with those opportunities that God's giving to us? You know, I want you to think about the end result of that sermon In verse 32 to 34, when Paul preached about the resurrection, some sneered. Others said, we will hear you again of this matter. And so Paul departed, but certain ones believed on him, among whom was uh, Dionysius, uh, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Do you see that? Three different responses to the sermon. There was derision, there was delay, and there was a decision for discipleship. But what set it up? Paul cared. He cared for people who were even different from him. But not only did he care, he had been spending himself building his knowledge of God's Word so that he could reason with people. You know, I think about that. Tonight's uh, the second Sunday night. We have those question and answers sermon, uh, sermons that we preach. One of the questions I'm going to try to answer tonight is, if God is so good, then why do bad things happen to people? Are we ready to answer questions like that? Or or even the other one. The other question tonight is, what does the Bible have to say about cremation? You know, there's a lot more fundamental questions. There's the question, what must I do to be saved? And how? what's the difference between where you go to church and everywhere else? We've got to build our ability to reason. But on top of that, we've got to be willing to, to toughen our skin... Not to be ugly and mean in retaliation, but to realize that we're going to endure some ridicule. And then be ready for the opportunities that God gives to us. What is the future of the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ? You know, we had a series of sermons a few months ago where we talked about remembering the past and how grateful we are to the great that's been done through the years. But that's not of primary importance to us. It certainly is important for us to live in the present and to encourage one another and to help one another. But all of that is building toward what God wants there to be after we've left this earth and gone out into eternity. That's the part of our culture that we can influence the most. This part of society, this part of the culture, built on what we do every day. This morning it may be that you're not yet a part of the body of Christ. We would love to encourage you. Maybe you want to study more about that. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're ready to repent of sins and to be baptized, to have those sins washed away, we'd love to help you with that today. Maybe you're a child of God who needs to respond to the invitation to be restored or to have us to pray for you. If that's the case, we would urge you to come right now as together we stand and sing.